I invite you to turn uh, in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 20, verse 17. Exodus 20, verse 17. So we have reached now the Tenth Commandment, the last of the, the commandments. And as I stated earlier, this commandment is different from all the other commandments that we've looked at, especially as we think about uh, the, the commandments beginning with the fifth, so the, the uh, five prior uh, commandments. I wonder if you've been able to think through and look at this commandment and determine how is this, how is the tenth different, not just in its content, but significantly different from the other ones, the ones that precede it. It's in this way. Uh, This one is not like the others in that the others were concerned directly with what we do and in one case with, with what we may say. You know, don't disobey authority. Do not murder. Don't commit adultery. Don't steal. Don't lie. All of these. These are things that uh, they're, they're outward actions. And I know we went from that, which is right, and, and looked uh, at, at what they were saying in greater depth, which does go to the heart. And we see that in, in the, uh, the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, yet, just looking at the basic message that's there, uh, in, in each of these cases, there, there are things that you can see. There, there's behavior that's that's there to be governed and controlled. It's outward. You know, and we're used to this kind of command, aren't we? Uh, if you think about the, the, the laws that we face in the world around us, uh, we really expect this kind of rule or law or commandment. Uh, you really can't, we, we know this, you really can't live in this world and just do whatever you want to do. Uh, there are restrictions, there are limits, there are laws. And so when we hear, do not murder, people are normally okay with that. They say, yes, I'd expect that. I I desire that to be not only over me, but over other people as well. So I'm good with it. But in this last commandment, we've got something that really is unheard of, a, a, a type of law that governs not just outwardly what we do, but what we want, what we desire. Uh, You know, immediately, that should strike you as being strange. There's not a a law in this land that is going to govern in in our court system what's going on in the heart in the same way that's going to say, you must not want that. Because... How is there going to be any control over that? And so when it comes to man, we don't have those kinds of laws. Yet, with this commandment, this is exactly what the Lord does. And notice what He's doing with this commandment. He's staking a claim, not just over what you do or over what you say, but a claim that's over your heart and mind. He's saying, I govern all of you. Not only what is outward, but what is inward as well. And therefore, he says, it is a sin to covet. I invite you to look with me at 
Exodus chapter 20, verse 17, the 10th commandment. This is God's Word. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Please join me in prayer. Father, we thank you that through this commandment, as well as certainly through uh, the outworking of your law and other places in Scripture, but we get a greater glimpse of who you are, that you are not only over us outwardly, but that you look upon the heart, and that changes everything. Uh, Father, I pray as we, as we take a look at this that you would help us to open our own hearts to you. We know the first step, uh, the first uh, and most basic purpose of your law is to open our hearts, to reveal our sin, to show where we have turned against you, that uh, we might see you in a right way, that we might turn ourselves more fully to you and walk in your obedience. Uh, Father, I pray that you would do that work within us. Make your word plain to us. Open your gospel to us that we might truly see and know and therefore follow. Uh, We pray for your help this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, when our, uh, our kids were very young, there was a, a children's book that some of you here may have read in the past, or you may, you may have it at home now and, and may read it with, uh, with children. Uh, it was a Max Lucado book, and uh, it's, it's one of those I remember really well because it stuck in my mind. It made an impression uh, upon me because, I, I think, because it, it in a in a way, very simply and very graphically captured a problem that all of us have. Uh, and yet it captured it through, through illustrations on the pages and the description. It, it, it graphically captured that problem, uh, even though it's a problem that we often, I, I think in our own hearts, we don't recognize, just as we don't recognize our, our own sin uh, yet this children's book just lays it out there and, and, and shows it in a very graphic way, and then we can apply it to ourselves. Uh, it's certainly not something that is uh, specific only to children, uh, even though it's a children's book, and certainly it can be, be seen. We can think about it in our own lives as we were uh, growing up and, and those of our children uh, as well. Well, in this book, uh, it's focused upon this really this purpose, that in this world we lack contentedness. In this world, all of us, we lack contentedness. And in the book, it's depicted by a community of, you know, uh, Max Lucado, he uses this in a few books, community of Wemmicks uh, living in Wemmickville. You may already know the book I'm talking about. And one day, one of the Wemmicks by the name of Tuck bought a fancy orange-striped box. And he didn't hide that box, but he showed it for all to see, and and he said, come, you can touch my fancy box. Uh, It was very appealing for the other Wemmicks to see it and uh, to handle it 
And that's, that's when the main character of the story, who's Punchinello, he saw the box and he thought it was beautiful. And he began to crave a box of his own. And what you see next, and this is part of the, the graphic part that's displayed for you, you see all the Wemmicks begin to acquire boxes, uh, bigger and bigger boxes, more and more beautiful and fascinating boxes. And they add to that balls as well. And what they do is they go about the streets and they walk looking at others around them as they're carrying their big mound of boxes and balls. And right at the middle of the book, uh, this message is given. It's really a statement of where their hearts were. Good Wemmicks have a lot. Not-so-good Wemmicks have little. And that drove discontentment within the community because not all the Wemmicks were able to have a lot. But even those who were, it meant that no Wemmick was ever able to have enough. There was always something more. There was always something greater. Someone was going to outdo them. So what you've got is a picture of discontentment. You know, that's exactly what this 10th commandment is dealing with. It says, you shall not covet. That word covet simply means to want something that you don't have, something that someone else has, something that's not available to you. And the commandment gives us a, a, a number of examples you shall not covet your neighbor's house, your neighbor's wife, your ma- his male servant, female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, uh, or anything that is your neighbor's. Notice you can covet people. You can covet things. If you look up that word to covet in Hebrew, it's, it's defined as an excessive, ungoverned, selfish desire for something. An excessive, ungoverned, that means uh, self-control sort of goes out the window. Ungoverned, selfish, it, it's focused upon self. It's, it's really not caring about the other person, the other people, their, their blessings, happiness for them and the things that they have. It's centered here, it's centered upon self. Things aren't good enough right now. We've got to have more. Uh, we've got to have this. We've got to have that. And so we lack contentment. Now, in looking at this, I've got to point out that not all desires involve coveting. That may be something that's obvious, but I want to make sure that we, we see this in a, in a right way. God has made us so that we do desire things. You know, it's because we desire food that we don't just stop eating we need to eat. Uh, we may desire to have a good job and to do good work. And therefore, there are blessings that come from that. We can provide for ourselves. We can provide for our families. Uh, when we desire intimacy, uh, maybe physical intimacy, that can be a contributor that leads to marriage. Marriage is a good thing. God has called us to that. Uh, so it, a, a question, is it wrong to improve your estate? 
what, what, you, what you have? Is it wrong to seek to improve, to get a better job, to, to maybe have a more spacious home? No. Those things are not necessarily wrong. Uh, God has made us to have desires that are good, that are healthy, but we have to carefully weigh these things because we know that our desires can be and often are corrupted by sin. So that we begin to crave that which God has not granted us to have. And sometimes it, it helps, it makes it easier for us to see that when our our inner passions become inflamed. You heard James a little while talk about this. It could involve uh, anger uh, inside a, a bitterness because we're not able to, to get that which we desire, perhaps that which we think we deserve. Uh, also, we can become obsessed and fixated upon something that we believe is right for us, which is not currently ours. That's sin. That is coveting. If you think about it, what a clear picture that is of the world in which we live. Uh, we can see it in so many different ways. Think about Black Friday. I think there's what is it, Cyber Monday now and, and maybe others as well, but Black Friday. Uh, it brings to mind what we read earlier in James. Uh, where he says, you covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. And of course, this is easier to see in other, other people, isn't it? Uh, we can look at others, we can, we can see you know, their, their sin there, this desire, this uh, longing for that which they don't have, and, and I'm going to get it, I'm going to get it, uh, no matter what. But the problem is that it's here as well. Uh, we may think, I'm content. I really am, for the most part. I, I'm, I'm good. I, I'm content. But we're going to test this as we go further uh, with this commandment. Because the truth is that true contentment, which this commandment calls for, is very rare. In fact, you may know about this. There, there's a Puritan book called The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. It's Christian contentment. It's only available to those who know the Lord Jesus Christ, to those who are Christians. But even then, it is rare. It's, a, it's, it's rare that it happens because there are many things that can stand in the way. And it's also, though, a jewel it's of, of great value. Everyone would like to have it. True contentment. Uh, unending contentment with, with where I am, no matter what my circumstances are. But it's very rare. And so we want to look, as we deal with this commandment, and talk about how. How are we able to have this true contentment? So I'd, to do that, I'd like to ask two questions. First of all, why? Why do we so often have discontentment? And then secondly, the answer, the solution. What solution has God given to us for discontentment? Uh, so 
first of all, why? Why do we have discontentment? Where does it come from? You know, it's something that we do. We, we see it all around us. Uh, it's out there, and it's not hard to see this discontentment. But it's also here, if we're at all honest with ourselves, almost always. Uh, it could be discontentment with your job. It could be discontentment with the people that you work with. Maybe the, the, the neighbors that actually live around you. It could be discontentment with your income, discontentment with your spouse, discontentment with your apartment that you live in or, or your, your home, your house, discontentment with uh, the, the, the world in which we live, the, the city in which we live, with some particular circumstance in which you find yourself. There, there can be discontentment you're unhappy about things in your life your soul is not at rest you're craving something else and so the question why 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 all this discontentment you know when i was describing that that, that story from the book max lucado's book maybe you recall the main character punchinello and what happened when he saw what his friend had now before that, it, it, it seemed like things were going along okay, but he saw that which his friend had, his friend Tuck, and when he first saw it, it says that there was, he, he looked at it, there was a, a delight to his eyes about what it might be able to do for him. And then he wanted it. He wanted it for himself, and, and it proceeds from there. To covet is to crave something, to yearn something, something that doesn't belong to you. It's a a selfish desire, as I said. It it doesn't think about the other person or anyone else. Uh, Punchinello saw what this could do for him, and that craving was right there within him. You know, he had already broken the Tenth Commandment before he actually did anything, before he went out and started looking and trying to find a box that was bigger than uh, his friends. It's this discontentedness that was there in his heart. So where did it come from? As we go through Scripture, it's a story that we see repeated again and again. And so there are many different places that we can go to look at this, but I think it's instructive for us to look at the very first time that we hear this. Think about Adam and Eve. Genesis chapter 2, they, had, they, they were living in perfect harmony in the garden that the Lord had put them in. But then in Genesis chapter 3, the serpent brings Eve's attention to one thing, to this one tree that was forbidden within the garden And here's her response, Genesis chapter 3. So when the woman, that's Eve, saw the tree and that it was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. You know, the first sin of all time was a breaking of the tenth commandment. Before she ever did anything, she went from a state of contentment to discontentment. So we've got to ask the question, why? 
Where does this come from? You know, there's a sense in which this doesn't make any sense, or it shouldn't make any sense to us. They had everything. Uh, God had met their needs, it's clear, with great abundance. They were lacking in nothing. The garden that they had been placed in was just and plentiful. God told them that, uh, he, he said at one point, out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. And so he told them, you may surely eat of every tree in the garden. Every tree in the garden. And then he said, except for one. The implication is there were many, many, many trees bearing fruit that was good. But there was one that they were not to eat lest they would die. And notice what he's telling. He's telling them what, what is good, what they needed to hear. He was caring for them. Now think about that. It would be ludicrous at that point for them to eat of that one tree with all that they had. They were fully provided for. And so this makes no sense. But what happened? Chapter 3. The tempter was there. What did he do? He just planted a seed of doubt in Eve's mind. Doubt about God's provision for her. Right there at the beginning of chapter 3, verse 1, he says to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Now notice there he completely misquoted God. But what he's really saying is, does he really care for you? Really? That's just a seed of doubt there. And Eve begins to think. Even at that point, she begins to think, you know, I really need to watch out for myself. God, God doesn't provide all that I need. I, I need to look out for myself. And right there, there's the door that's open for this inordinate desire, this excessive desire which leads to discontentedness. It wasn't there before, but now there's a seed of doubt in God's provision, God's love, God's caring, and it leads to a discontentedness. And so it goes on and on. This is the pattern that every one of us who are children of Adam and Eve, this is the pattern that now, after the fall, that all follow. We, we do know that Adam and Eve didn't have to follow in this pattern, but they did, cho they did choose to. They chose to listen and to doubt and to follow. Today it's different uh, that apart from something change, a uh, change taking place, that we have that pattern set before us. They are our parents and that we've, we fall into this uh, pattern, the same one that they do. We listen to the same voice that they heard. And so why? Why do I do this? Why do I crave that which I do not have? It's because somehow, somehow I'm failing to to trust, to see, first of all, and to trust God's providence. I don't really believe, perhaps, that God has put me in these circumstances that I find myself in. No, God wouldn't do that. He, he loves me. He would not do that. 
I refuse to believe that this is at his hand. Why would he deprive me of the things that I, I need, that I want? Do you kind of recognize in that the voice of the tempter? Sounds exactly like what we saw in the garden. It is the same voice. Same voice that was whispering in Eve's ear, whispers in our ears as well. Now we've got to recognize uh, there was the temptation that was there. Think about the world in which we live. A world in which there is temptation that's placed before us at all times. Temptation that we might hear the voice of the tempter. Our, our culture in which we live, it, it encourages, it feeds coveting. And this is a danger we've got to recognize that day in and day out that we are faced with, day in, day out, for those of us who have children that you are, that our children are faced with, uh, we're surrounded by messages from those who are selling products. It's not wrong to sell a product. Uh, but there are many different ways that these are sold, and the intent with them is to pull us in. There's always something that, that's bigger, that's greater, that's better, that we don't have. And what can start in our hearts is that craving. I've, I've got to have that. It would hurt these other areas of my life, but I've got to, I need to have that. And today, the idea that's pushed is what? It's, it's, you can have whatever you want. You need to take care of, number one, we're told, you, you deserve to have what your heart desires. And this message is everywhere. We're flooded with these messages. And it's, it's not at all, is it, a considering of the Lord God and of who He is and of how He has provided and uh, what He is and represents in our lives. That, that message is not there at all, is it? It's absent. And if we are not hearing from God's voice regularly, daily, reading His promises, hearing them, sharing together in them, what's going to happen? What almost must happen? We're going to be drawn in by the voices that we do hear. We're susceptible. The great deceiver is, is saying, does he, really, does he really care for you? Why would he withhold this from you? This that would be good for you, that would be right it's the message of the tempter. These, those things that are not ours at this point. The Lord has not given them to us. Others might have them, but they're not ours, and so we are discontent. Let me ask you a question. Do you trust in the Lord God to care for you, to provide for you? You can answer that question in your mind. But if you lack contentedness in some area of your life, then please repeat these words after me. No, I do not trust in God to care for me. I do not trust in God to provide for me. You know, this really is the first step, isn't it? The first step that we must take is to see our own sin. You know, when it comes to an illness or a disease... What's the whole reason that we initially go to a physician? Maybe, maybe it is to take care of some of the pain. But, but really, it's to find out what is the problem. We need a diagnosis. We need to understand what our problem is because otherwise there's no way to move forward. There's no way of fixing it. 
And so if you are discontent with things in your life, your problem is not the things that you have probably been pointing to. It's not your job. It's not your spouse. It's not your, your, your home or the money or, or the weather. It's a failure to receive and trust in that which the Lord has provided. You know, in Hebrews 13.5, the author of Hebrews says, Be content with what you have, because he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. What's, what's the ground that we are to stand upon? I will never leave you nor forsake you. Therefore, be content, he says. These are God's promises. We are to lean upon them, to trust in them. Think about that instruction we're given in, in Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not upon your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge Him and He will make your paths straight. And we've got we've to recognize our own sin and, and see it for what it is and recognize Satan's voice when we hear it. You need these things for yourself. You don't have them. You haven't been given them, but you must have them. This is where the problem of discontentment comes from. It comes from, as we go all the way back, the fall of Adam and Eve so that we listen to the voice of the tempter, the great deceiver, rather than the voice of God. That's the problem. So what's the solution? What has God provided as a solution to discontentment? This is where the good news comes, that God does not leave us without a solution. The rest of the world that doesn't look to the Lord is left without a, a solution. There is no true and final contentment to be had. But God provides a solution. Now, the problem came through Adam and through the fall and through their listening to the tempter. But the solution comes to us through the second Adam. You know, sometimes, sometime back we studied uh, the book of Philippians. And you may recall what the Apostle Paul, this is often what we think about in Scripture when we think about contentment, what Paul said in, in chapter 4 of Philippians about himself and about contentment. He said, he said this, not that, I am learning, not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to, how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. Well, think about what Paul was saying there, that in whatever circumstance he's in, and in other places, we learn about Paul's circumstances. And the low circumstances were really low. And the high circumstances were really high. In all circumstances, he said, I, I, I have learned what it means to be content. In other words, there is true contentment to be had. And that's what this commandment is really all about. That's what it's calling for us to have, even commanding for us to have, be content. Don't constantly be desiring that which is not yours, that which others have, 
but which you don't have, you shall not covet. The question is, how? Well, notice a couple of things out of this passage. First of all, notice what Paul says right at the end of the passage. He talks about being content. He talks about in all situations, high and low, I have learned to be content. And then he says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Paul's contentment wasn't something that he worked up inside of himself. It wasn't something that he found inside of himself because of his accomplishments, because of his background, because of of who he knew himself to be. Nor was it something that came from any other person in the world around him or any other material thing. He simply says, it came through him who strengthens me. You know, there's a principle there. Contentment, true contentment requires strength. It requires power. But it's not a strength, it's not a power that's from ourselves. It requires a strength and a power that is not of this world. It's not to be found in ourselves. It's not to be found in the things or the people of this world around us. Do you remember what the tempter whispered into Eve's ear? It was, in essence, you you can't trust God, can you? He's not really caring for you. He's not providing that which you, you have a right to, that which you have a need for. You need to look at yourself. And you need to find contentment here and here. The tempter focused her upon that which she did not have. Now, it was all a lie, but it was effective. And the same voice is whispering in your ears and in my ear. You've got to look to yourself. God doesn't provide everything for you. You've got to look for your, to, to yourself. That's where true contentment is going to, to be found. You've got to find your own way. It's still a lie. But it's going to be effective if we listen to it. But here's the key. This is the good news, that we don't have to listen to that voice. That we don't have to follow in Adam and Eve's footsteps because now... Remember, a power is needed, a strength is needed. Now, a new power has entered into the world. A power, a strength that has broken the power of sin and of all that sin leads toward of death. Now, Jesus is called in, in, in Romans chapter 5 and uh, the, the end of uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. He's called the second Adam. The second Adam who came into this world with a purpose to break the grip of sin and Satan that he has upon us. You know why he's called the second Adam? Because he reversed everything that the first Adam set into place with that first fall. Adam and Eve, they were together Everything that Adam did, everything that delivered mankind into this place of of sin and of misery and of discontentment, he reversed. He, the second Adam. Adam and Eve were tempted by Satan, by the serpent, and they fell. They turned against God, and they put themselves and all mankind into the same boat, into the hands of the evil one. 
unable to release themselves. But the second Adam, Jesus, the Son of God, He came and He broke that grip. Remember the temptations early in the ministry of Jesus? Remember He was, he was led out into the wilderness by Satan and He was tempted again and again and again? But He broke that grip. He did that which we are not able to do. Remember, then He, he went upon the cross and He took our sin upon Himself on the cross so that we, those who are discontent, are no longer slaves to that sin so that we can have true contentedness. You know, Paul says in in Romans 6.14, But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves to sin have now become obedient to the heart, to the standard of teaching to which you are committed. It's, a, it's an exchange of masters. You were obedient to Satan. You were in his grip. But now you're obedient to God. You're in his grip. And that's what Paul is saying here in Philippians chapter 4. That's what he's relying upon. He's relying upon the strength of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, you know, Paul says elsewhere, uh, this is in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, uh, he says that he himself is weak, utterly weak, completely without. And he, he will boast in his weakness, he says, so that the power of Christ might rest upon me. You know, this is the first key. This is what we need in order to erase our discontentment. Contentment comes to us only when we are weak in and of ourselves, but when Christ is strong. When we allow Him, remember we sang earlier about God's dominion? When we allow Him to have dominion over all areas of our lives, when we are submitted to Him, we will never experience contentment in this world, true contentment, the contentment that we're talking about here, unless it is the, by the power of Christ in us that's bringing it about. And just briefly, the second thing that we find here in, in, in Philippians 4, in Paul's statement on contentment, it's something that he says twice. Now, Paul says, for I have learned in whatever situation I am in, to be content. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. Those key words, I have learned. It didn't just happen. Paul didn't just go on the road to Damascus. He wasn't just converted. He, he came to see the Lord, and all of a sudden, for the rest of his life, he was content inside. No, even the Apostle Paul, he had to learn contentment. This comes through sanctification. He, th there were times, there must have been times, when Paul was looking for contentment. This is after his conversion. He was looking for contentment inside of himself, in the things in the world around him. But he needed to learn. And how, do, how, do, how did we learn that? It's the law. Paul speaks about it, in, especially in Romans chapter 7. Uh, the law showed him his own sin. It pointed to his own sin. He needed to see that. It needed to be revealed to him through God's law that he might learn true contentment, that he might turn to the one who brings true contentment. 
that should serve as a comfort to us as we look at our own hearts and as we see our own failing, see our own discontentment in this life, see that we have coveted, that we have looked for that which we don't have and have desired it, have longed for it with our own hearts. We need to see that. We need to see the sin revealed. That's really the purpose here. That's God's purpose with His law. Not just with this, the tenth commandment, but with all ten, that we might see our sin and that we might recognize, therefore, anew our need for Christ. That we might learn true contentment alongside of Paul. You know, Jesus, He did the work for us. He took our, our, our sin upon Himself. He lived the perfect life for us. He did the work for us. Now we're called to look to Him, to trust in Him. Uh, he took the sins of discontented people that they might experience true contentment in this world. Where? In Him and in Him alone. And really, through and through, that's the way we need to see the whole law. Uh, is that which draws us to Christ. Uh, God's law through and through is good. And we are to see it that way. We, we are to want it. Lord, show me my own sin. Open up my own heart that I might see You more fully. That I might walk in Your ways. We are sinful. We are going our own way. We need to be returned, as Peter says, 1 Peter chapter 2. We need to be returned to the shepherd and the overseer of our souls. That we might walk in, in His ways. And know His ways. Through and through, through the highs and through the lows. That we might know true contentment. There is true contentment in this world. And it's found in one place. It's found in the Lord Jesus Christ. Please. Look to the Lord in prayer with me. Lord, we thank You for Your uh, good gifts. We thank You, Lord, that You know us well. Each one of us are different here, whether young or old. Now, each one of us see things in a particular way, and we act out on that which we see in a particular way. Lord, You know the sin that is within. You know what needs to be brought out, what needs to be seen, not so that we can dwell upon it, but so that we can see You in a, in a right way and turn to You and, and walk in Your ways. Uh, we recognize from this passage it's that which we need to learn. There is a process there. It's not just going to happen tomorrow. But we can turn to You and, and begin today to truly trust in You as, as the law opens up our own hearts and it reveals uh, our need. So we pray that that would take place, Lord. And that You would show us who we are truly able to be in Christ. We ask for Your help. And we thank You for Your Word. In Jesus' name, Amen.